Hello everyone, welcome back to the Women's Center podcast. This is the sixth episode, a very special one because it's in partnership with the Tisch College. This might be a little bit of a secret, but I'm a Tisch Scholar. And Tisch Scholar is is a really cool program aimed at fostering civic engagement. Scholars work with local organizations throughout the school year to get ourselves more involved in the communities surrounding us. And part of the Tisch Scholars program is that at the end of our time, we do a little fun capstone. So I'm in a group of three with lovely friends Daria, Leia, and Malvika, who will each introduce themselves shortly. But our group decided that as people who are relatively active lol on campus, something we really wanted to know better about is tips and actions for better campus organizing. Campus organizing is a huge job and an emotionally and physically draining one. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with the amount of work with little know-how you start with at the beginning of your first years. For this reason, we wanted to sit down with folks we thought are doing amazing work already and may have some tricks up their sleeves for us to learn from. Their names are Jamila, Nick, and Ciara. So for folks looking to organize better, looking to learn with us, I hope you appreciate their stories and advice. But first, I'm passing it off to my friend Daria to introduce herself first. Hi, I'm Daria. I use she, her. I study English and medical anthropology at Tufts. Um, and I'm really excited to be here with y'all to have these conversations. Leia, do you want to go next? Yeah. Hi, I'm Leia. I study environmental studies and biology. And I'm super happy to be here with y'all as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Malvika. <laughs> um, I'm a senior studying history and Asian American studies. And yeah, I had a great time doing these interviews with you guys, and I'm really excited to talk about them. Amazing, but before we talk about them, I have a bit of an icebreaker question that oh. I, don't, I don't even have it. I just, we, we formed this as a group, and apparently it's a big Frisbee thing, so shout out to Frisbee. Um, <laughs> shout out to elementary school Frisbee. <laughs> but it's, what is it? If you were so, a kitchen utensil? Yeah, if you were a kitchen utensil, what kitchen utensil would you be? And like a little bit about like why. A little bit about. For context, I first heard this in third grade. If I were to be a kitchen utensil, I would probably be a spork. No, I was gonna say spork, damn it. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna go last and say spork, but well, you Well, spork is so like, you know, like multifunctional. Sure, like that's, me. I mean, I, I do know, <laughs> okay. Cause you stole that from me. Anyways, <laughs> Daria, damn. Leia. Um, I would probably, probably be a fork i don't have a reason i just feel like that's where my energy lies i like that when i okay i eat pasta with a fork i eat yeah rice with a fork i'm not a spoon girl so what do you eat soup with um i just drink it straight oh damn okay i think i'm thinking about whisks i don't know if i am a whisk Spork is not basic. <laughs> I feel like a lot of third graders would answer spork. We're not third graders. Really out of the box. No, I'm pretty sure I said spork in the third grade. Okay, <laughs> that's that's actually. actually. <laughs> this is not where our debate lies today. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you guys for indulging in that question. I'm glad it was a very controversial <laughs> Um, But yeah, getting into a lot of the interviews that we did. Um, first, we'll have Malvika introduce our first speaker. Yeah, so... The first person we interviewed was Jamila. 
Jamila is a recent graduate from Brown University. She led cast protections organizing during her time at Brown and has a lot of experience dealing with, in quotes, the university, which we discuss in detail. We talked about the concept of institutional knowledge, the impact that COVID had on student organizing, and advice for her younger self. We hope you enjoy this. Yeah, so um, I come from a mixed South Asian background. So I'm half Indian um, and half white, and my family is Muslim. And I grew up in a very white area. And I think that for a long time, my identity was kind of being Muslim. And that was like at the forefront of my identity. And then I think that leaving a, that space and going to spaces where I interacted with more people, I was able to kind of understand the other elements to my identity more. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, coming from that background and in like a very white space where there's constant, you know, race discrimination, religious discrimination, I think that it was very natural for me to be interested in organizing and have a lot of political aspirations. I guess to start off, we can kind of talk about maybe some of your experiences with organizing. It can either be like at Brown or um, in your personal life, but what are some of the organizations that you've been working with? Yeah, so I mean, I think that I've done a lot of organizing. That was definitely something that I became very passionate about at a young age, but I felt like I had the autonomy and ability to pursue a lot of that in college. Um, so I think that in my first couple years, I it was kind of hard to figure out what exactly I felt my niche was, um, but I became really interested in South Asian organizing because my family's South Asian, and I think that growing up in a predominantly white area, I hadn't really had the opportunity to think as deeply about the political side of that identity that I wish I had been able to. Um, so that's kind of where I started, and I began organizing with Equality Labs. I also have done work with South Asian domestic violence organizations. I was really passionate about um, the intersection of gender and caste and how Brahminical patriarchy dictates, you know, the lives of many South Asians, both in South Asia and then now in the U.S. as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I was starting from. And then in my later years, the end of my junior year into my senior year, I uh, began the campaign for caste protections at Brown, which is kind of what I am mostly focused on organizing now. Um, at Brown, we were lucky enough to be successful in adding caste to its non-discrimination policy. 
but you know the work doesn't stop there so I'm still organizing around caste protections and um ending caste discrimination very cool something that I that popped into my head was like it sounds like um a lot of your identities were kind of like challenged or maybe pushed a little bit further um to think more about maybe those aspects that you hadn't um considered before when coming to brown um I wanted to ask, like, how did you go about, like, learning? How did you go about expanding your concept? And how did that kind of funnel into more of your involvement, if it did? Yeah, I think there's one experience that was interesting and jarring was I'd kind of considered joining the SAFA, the South Asian Students Association at Brown. And when I first got there, it was actually like the president of it was this Chinese guy and I remember being really confused and uncertain and I asked one of my friends who is an upperclassman who is uh, Pakistani and Muslim and they were like don't go in that space like it's whack you know there's it's a very weird and non-political space where Mm -hmm. people you know are mostly coming from very privileged backgrounds dominant caste backgrounds um hindu backgrounds you know wealthy backgrounds and it was this glorified friend group that didn't see identity as something that is political and i thought that definitely didn't align with how I felt and how I experienced my identity Mm -hmm. um so yeah I I tried to find other people South Asian and also just other people of color who you know had aligned a little more with my own politics and I think that having friends who came from all these different backgrounds and could you know we had a lot of just intimate frank conversations about identity and I think I learned more about how to think about my South Asian identity from people who actually weren't South Asian Mm. I resonate with some of them too I feel like I guess like going off that question I'm curious about like how like South Asian identity in the context of like greater organizing on college campuses or like thinking about like as South Asians and like as specifically who we are as individuals like how do we like where is our place or like how do we sort of fit in in terms of like I don't know I think a lot of like background organizing here is kind of like we've been able to find like niches with like SJP and like other like similarly minded groups I know we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago maybe if you could speak a little bit more to like how you've taken things from either your friends or people that you've been inspired by um and sort of being able to apply that to yourself or if that hasn't happened like yeah no I mean I think that a lot of the organizing strategies and like the way that I was informed about the university landscape came from SJP at Brown um, and our Brown Divest campaign Mm -hmm. and some of my closest friends were you know leading that and so I think that that was such an asset. I became involved in it my freshman year. Um, and 
yeah, I think that that was a huge thing that was happening on campus my freshman year of college where Brown passed um, a referendum calling upon the university to divest. Um, and it was hugely contentious. And I feel like, especially in my first year, like seeing that play out and like being really invested in it um, made me want to be invested in not only that but also things that mattered to me on a personal level um yeah and then there I mean there's there was also really great prison abolition work going on I think particularly after um in the summer of 2020 you know I think that a lot of activists and like you know, we had this uh, abolitionist coalition that came out of that. Um, and that was kind of really interesting to also work really closely with graduate students, um, which I hadn't really had many um, relationships with grad students before. But in this abolitionist coalition, it was, you know, led by graduate students, but there were a lot of undergrads involved. Um, I also was really involved ever since my freshman year um, with our sexual assault peer education program. And I did a lot of work with different organizations and communities on campus around consent and sexual violence and um, led a lot of initiatives on like thinking about that work more intersectionally. Yeah. Um, so I think that that definitely informed, you know, how I also wanted to think about, you know, organizing around caste and being South Asian. I really wanted to bring it from a gendered lens. And I ended up writing my thesis on romantical patriarchy and caste organizing and like what Dalit feminism yeah. does for leading the movement yeah specifically to organizing I feel like a really big theme that's coming up is like this idea of um like cross political movements like throughout campus and like the idea that you can get inspired and work with and build off of the work of other student orgs or other organizers and I was just wondering if you could like speak more to that like do you find that it was similar at your school because that's how it is at ours where there's like kind of these networks of people who tend to be involved in the same thing and if so like how do you kind of capitalize on that or are there any ways to like bring in people who perhaps aren't involved in like those types of networks to get more involved and kind of bridge yeah I think I definitely think that was a huge asset for me um when I was trying to start the cast protections campaign was knowing that I had networks of people that I knew would have my back if anything went wrong um at the same time I think something interesting was seeing a lot of burnout post-COVID um Brown had this really rich activist culture I think pre-COVID and you know I think it's still continuing but I think that something that happened was 
a lot of the older students and the younger students didn't connect as much so there was this disconnect of institutional memory and yeah 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 so I think like to the disadvantage of organizing so many things were lost and there's a lot of organizing that was happening pre-covid that was really dissipated post-covid and or like people knew people wanted to take off that organizing but didn't know the history and things like that yeah Um, so I think I was lucky in that I had been there both both pre and post COVID and I had that institutional knowledge. Yeah. And you know, I worked with younger students and tried to pass some of that down, but I think I mean I could be wrong, but I think that like the landscape now, I'm I'm graduated, but it's interesting to see what organizing is going on because I think it looks a bit different than it did wait yeah can you speak to that a little like what in particular tends to jump out at you um I think that like in some of the SJP and divest organizing a lot of the head organizers who had run the divestment campaign pre-covid had since graduated Mm -hmm. and or the underclassmen so like my year the people who had been involved were so burnt out and like didn't want to yeah. leave anymore and so you had a lot of younger people stepping up but maybe not necessarily having the traditions and the history and the knowledge um in what what was happening do you have any tips on like kind of getting into that like trying to institutionalize that yeah form of knowledge like how do you try to make sure that even when you're not there folks know how to go about and they don't have to start from scratch all over again because I think that's a really big concern that we also have as like graduating Mm -hmm. seniors who see our organizing like constantly changing I think that something that I know SJP does is well first of all like there should be like folders just of everything that you've used like meeting notes like documents that have been referenced or created on a non-university google drive that's so fair Um, for security reasons but also like longevity when Mm. so that alum can still access slash contribute if needed um i think we also just have like contacts for alum going many years back Mm -hmm. um I think that in another group in the safe group that I worked in we did an oral history project um it's like a really long-standing student organization and so we interviewed a bunch of like people who were in the group decades ago just to kind of get a sense because some of that history was lost and we wanted to bring that back um yeah and I think those were really helpful in understanding that the organization has changed over the years and maybe why and that I think helps with envisioning what an organ what organizing looks like in the future if you know kind of what happened and also what 
the limitations have been yeah um sorry when you were talking about creating in a google drive or whatever outside of the institution like logins and stuff i've never considered that before and i think that's so incredibly smart and i was just wondering if you had any kind of more tips or advice around that regard like ways that you might run into problems with the institution like things i guess to expect for people that are starting off like these are some of the challenges that you'll face and like this is what you can do about them i think that depending on the work that you're doing i think work that's more precarious and potentially more adversarial to the institution like that's a huge thing is having people use personal email addresses because the institution technically has the right to access anything in your email anything in your google drives um and like i think we had like a whatsapp group Mm. um and i think having or like signal things like that i think having spaces outside of the university are really helpful i also know that some organizations do like teach-ins early on in either the fall or spring semester um and sometimes that can be like teach-ins or retreats where you kind of go over some of that history um like what the organization has done in like the past however many years um and like yeah I think that was big um I also think that just implementing mentoring is really helpful. I think that sometimes in organizing spaces, it's really difficult to upend the like power, the age power dynamic where you have like first years and seniors and mm. it's really hard to approach a senior when you're a freshman. Yeah. And I think that finding ways to like even that is really helpful because you know those people are the future of organizing yeah that's a great answer I think a lot of I'm a history major so I feel like I'm always like history people know this like that's like my big my big thing so I love a teach-in that's very interesting like a timeline can be really helpful yeah are interactive and you can add That's a great idea. I know the Africana Center, like, at Tufts did this project a couple of years ago that was, like, chronicling, like, student activism on campus and, like, over the years, specifically in relation to Black students and, like, what that looks like. And, like, I think our Asian American Center did something like that this past year, like, building off of their work. And it was really powerful. There was, like, so many things I feel like I didn't know or, like, strategies, like you were saying earlier, that people had used before. And I was like, okay, so it would make sense to not use this again. Or like or things maybe like that. Or maybe do, do it again yeah. if it like yeah. No, yeah, I think I think for us, like one thing that I I know was not passed down and I wish mm-hmm. was is so we have a center for students of color and that has a really long political history. Like it was, you know, founded in the time of like the Third World Liberation Front. Oh. Um and it's like a huge you know it's it's amazing to have like an actual building on campus that's our own that's dedicated um to organizing like a lot of 
organizing and activism meetings would happen in that space but there's like so much history of the university trying to force out the staff members in that space and like there's like a schism when I was at Brown and like the university really essentially tried to put in puppet leaders of Mm. that space that would kind of do their bidding instead of being like radical and there's there's all these medium articles that students had written during that time that's so scary yeah and like and like I think a lot of the underclassmen just didn't know that and like there was a whole it was a whole thing like they fired the director they like a bunch of the staffers ended up leaving it was this whole thing and like you know COVID happened and everybody came back and I don't think anybody knew about it and it's like that's how quickly these things disappear but then there's also all those medium articles and I remember like sending Hmm. a bunch of underclassmen that I like realized didn't know about it like all these articles and I was like yeah you should read about this that's crazy but that um what you're talking about like medium articles and stuff the same thing we met with Nick who's also big on organizing for like um like demilitarization stuff and he was saying the same thing about um how important literature is to like passing on knowledge like if you can get things published about like what's happening then that's an yeah, easy yeah. archival way for like folks to find out what you're doing because I'm like what would have happened if there were no like articles or anything like that like that's such a scary possibility yeah. and I think it is telling then again that like like the daily for our like lo- mm-hmm. whatever or yeah. like newspaper like they have had also a history of like not being too attentive yeah um to like organizing that's happening on campus and then I think they're changing maybe benefit of doubt in recent years. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think your point, again, like reminds me of how important like pushing across campus to like be mindful is important because if you don't have that kind of like allyship with those who are writing and publishing, then those things can kind of like disappear too. No, yeah. that's such a good point. The producers of knowledge thing is interesting. Yeah. This is kind of related to, I guess, like cost protection stuff, Jamila, but when we were like first starting to think about like what like this was like very early on in terms of just like interrogating like hinduism Mm -hmm. um like in like this club that we're both a part of and i mean obviously you're not hindu but i guess it still relates to like culture and religion and subcontinent obviously and like brahminical patriarchy and things like that we were sort of talking to like the hindu students association and like the hindu chaplain we're like oh like maybe you should disaffiliate like the national organization is super hindu nationalist all of these things and then like we start, sort of started talking about cast and like the tufts daily like which is our student newspaper like tried to interview like all the people involved in the like conversation is how they framed it so like they interviewed the hindu chaplain they interviewed like my friend krithi and a couple of other people who have since graduated who are sort of part of institutionalizing caste stuff a little bit more um like caste protections programs and then they interviewed OEO and like a bunch of other like random constituents of people who are kind of like against the concept of adding cast and then like published this very like shitty article which we eventually like I think it did get taken down but like 
yeah, whoever produces knowledge and sort of thinking about who has the power to do that is very important. Yeah, for sure. that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of organizing spaces at Brown have had trouble with our daily newspaper. Um, and I think that while I think it can be really helpful to use newspapers, I feel like op-eds are generally mm. a better way to go um, because you just get your own voice out there. And I think like sometimes though, I know like there have been people who have, you know, written op-eds, sent them to the editors and the editors have tried to completely shift the narrative and change the entire article and that's actually where a lot of the medium articles came in is like people whose op-eds have been censored um wanting to actually get what they actually wrote out there and like circulate that to people um yeah I also think I know that at least at Brown like we have in our library we have archives where like I know that the one of our Asian students organizations had done like a disorientation guide. Um, and I remember I was doing research for my thesis in the archives and like it was a zine and I found it and I was like, whoa, it was from like 2019. I was like, oh, this is like super recent. They're not just collecting really old things. They're collecting work as it appears. And I think that I think there's a lot of politics of like what it means to collect and like be within an archive in a university but I think that's something something to think about and I know a lot of our centers like our center for students of color our um, center for women and gender or all of these centers um, have their own archives where people have submitted things that's really cool yeah I guess sort of moving forward a little bit if you could I guess give yourself some advice from maybe when you first started organizing or sort of thinking about yourself in like a political way um on campus like maybe what are some things you would say or what are some of the I guess yeah advice pieces things like that that you would tell yourself at that time yeah I think I I think one of my biggest takeaways from the four years that I was at Brown and the organizing that I did was learning that change can happen in many ways and also that it's not all about being the loudest person in the room. Um, I think that one of my critiques of a lot of university activism is while it may be well-intentioned, I think that there's often this really, really extreme sense of urgency for people because you're there for a finite amount of time and you want to get done what you want to get done. And also, I think there's a little oftentimes like a selfish, selfish element of like, I want to be the one who did this. And so I've seen a lot of organizers like bulldoze their way through trying to get something done. And then, you know, they haven't built power. They don't have these connected, long-standing relationships 
and when they're done and if they don't succeed then like everybody has to start from scratch because it's been like one person just bulldozing their way through and I think that sometimes works but most often doesn't and I think that what I learned from Equality Labs which like is an organization that has taken so much time like even you know you see the campaigns and you think oh it's like coming out of nowhere and it's immediately successful but like I feel like behind the scenes they've been building and cultivating relationships and building power for so many years Mm. and if you don't have a strong base of that like nothing you do will be successful and I think that where I've seen organizations kind of falter is when they rely so much on like one person and then when that one person leaves like the whole organization falls apart yeah thank you for that interesting I think you offered a lot of really important different pieces of advice in that so I really appreciate it I really appreciate it is there anything you would like to add things that you really think that we should know and we don't want to skip over Mm -hmm. or anything maybe this has made you think of yeah or also any shout outs to like work you're working on right now, ways for people to get involved in that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've sadly not had so much time to dedicate to organizing. Um, so true. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I think there's going to be some really exciting campaigns around caste protections coming up, especially after that win in Seattle. Um, so I think keep your eyes open for all of that um yeah I also think like one like last thing is that I think we're often way too hard on ourselves Mm. um and like it's really easy to burn out when you care about something and I think that taking time to care for yourself is so important in all of this work and I think that it sometimes feels really difficult to take a breather when you're really passionate about something and you feel so invested but at the same time I think you know there's a lot of joy in just taking a step back sometimes totally yeah I feel like especially what you were saying earlier about like the campus and like the lifestyle of like urgency and this has to happen now and like all of that is like it's not necessarily like irresponsible what comes to my mind but it's just like I feel like I sometimes I catch myself doing this too I'm like wow you have your whole life to do this like this doesn't end here (laughs) you will still be alive way past the time you leave this institution yeah definitely and I think like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because the university is totally weaponizing the fact that you're leaving and that you're there for a finite amount of time and they rely on that to stifle change that's why they delay everything and they they say you know there's all these bureaucratic reasons why you know we can't do it at this time and we'll get to it in a year and like honestly I feel like so much of that is just waiting for those people who keep nagging them to leave hoping that no one will replace them um so that's why I think it's so important to have those people to replace (laughs) Well, thank you so much again for all your time and all your input. It was really, really super valuable. Thank you for meeting with us. Yeah, really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much. 
Jamila brings up a lot of good points about the importance of mentorship within organizations and it was also interesting to hear how organizing for her seems to be more personally grounded in her identity. For other organizers, there might be different access points. Now we'll hear from Nick Rabb, my former professor for data and power and a PhD student at Tufts University studying computer science and cognitive science. He's heavily involved with anti-militarist organizing on campus. Um, the group was, the group he was in was involved in disrupting a Raytheon career event at the School of Engineering last May. He also talks about what it's like to organize on quote-unquote trendy topics versus topics that are more controversial and not at the forefront of people's minds. So let's hear Nick. Maybe you can start off by talking a bit with like what you're familiar around organizing already, how you got involved in those kinds of spaces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just explain kind of like what you're passionate about, what you like to do. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So let's see. I think the first like organizing thing I ever did was um, an undergrad when I was, at, I was at the Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, where I'm from. And I think it was like right after um, Trump's election. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I had been like getting more politically minded for a couple of years at that point and wanted to like try to do something more active, um, but had not really thought of anything. So I was, it was like in the sort of weeks following that and I was like, oh, something that really freaks me out is like climate stuff. Climate is like where I got my organizing start. I think like a lot of other people my age. Um, so we, I just like, you know, made an event where people could like go to the statue in the middle of campus and like put up like a poster, or, like make a poster of like what they feel like they want to like protect or something with the climate. Mm -hmm. um, but then the campus police came and were like, you're causing, you're like sowing seeds of chaos. Mm -hmm. And they shut us down and the guy was like, do you want to like get arrested? And I was like, well, I don't even know what's happening right now. And it was a wild thing, but that was like my first foray into like even trying to do anything. Um, what age was that? Oh, I was probably 21, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, which was scary. Not... That's really intimidating. Your first time doing that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You already get intimidated by the way you feel so much more powerful in that moment. Totally. Yeah, it's such a strange thing. Like, I really didn't think much about it at the time until like, you know, way later after I like got more organizing experience. But it's such a wild thing for like, you know, a campus authority, like the campus police to come because like, you're like sowing chaos, like on campus, which is such a strange thing um, for someone to like police, like, oh, you're like disrupting, you know, an otherwise fine environment, even though like there are things that I think that are worth uplifting so that people's minds are disrupted mm -hmm. a little bit so so yeah i thought it was kind of weird kind of a heavy response yeah and then from there where did it end up going right so from there um i kind of chilled for a bit i like moved to boston and started working and like still wanted to get involved and like get more organized and I ended up joining um sunrise movement mm -hmm. which is like a youth-led climate movement that has since it still exists, but has since sort of like evolved and changed a bit. But the original thing that the organization was pushing for was for um, a Green New Deal, 
which was like this big sweeping federal legislation that we wanted to like make a priority like for the country that would like address the climate crisis with a big economic and social transition that would like kind of change change like the way we we do everything and it was like very justice oriented and so i got involved with uh, the boston chapter there are a bunch of chapters all over the country and i got involved in the boston one and i did a bunch of stuff like organize like a big um like we had a green new deal tour like across the country where speakers like um like aoc and iana presley and ed markey came around and like talked about climate stuff and like promoted the green new deal so we organized one of those sessions in boston at the strand theater in dorchester so like it was one of my like first things getting like 1400 people to like come into an auditorium and like watch you know aoc like go off about the climate which was really cool and like really powerful um but i also did like outreach to like schools around boston like talking to like high schoolers and middle schoolers about getting involved or like climate um and a lot of their teachers like like invited us to come because it was like this moment where it was really on people's minds mm. um I did political education in the organization. So anyways, yeah. yeah. I kind of have a question. I don't want to cut anyone off though. Um, I've heard a lot of things about the Sunrise Movement and I want to get into that as well. Mm -hmm. But um, you were talking about, you know, you said something along the lines of like, it was on everyone's minds. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a huge part of organizing is an ability to rally people when it's on their minds. Mm -hmm. um, how do you continue to motivate people to join in action with you when it's not as much of a like, trendy topic anymore? Mm, it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, I think on the one hand, there are a lot of things that every, like are on people's minds, but like not enough people are talking about them that everybody realizes they're thinking the same thing. So that's one thing. So that's that's a huge like piece of intervention that I think can happen from organizing is like even if it's not like um, you know this this moment where everyone is talking about climate, but even rewind like like a year before people might have been thinking about it. And then once people started to speak up, people were like, oh, okay, me too. Like, yeah. I, I'm really afraid of this too. And then, you know, it kind of snowballs. But then like when things really are not in the sort of zeitgeist or are maybe even like the opposite of the zeitgeist and are topics you can't touch for certain like political or social reasons, that's even harder. And that's like, I think some of the more important spaces to rally people around. Um, as an organizer, because, you know, not to say that, like, during the moment where, like, climate was on a lot of people's minds in, like, 2018, 2019, 2020, um, not to say that that wasn't important work, but people worked really hard before that to, like, make it on people's minds mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I think is, like, some of the most crucial work to, like, start that snowball effect. So I feel like some of the stuff I've done after Sunrise is more in that area yeah yeah i think we're excited to hear about that tell us more about what you've been doing since then and sure. on, on campus in particular as well and how that fits into the story right so what i've been doing after sunrise is more like anti-militarism organizing and that's what i've been doing on campus as well mm -hmm. so when i yeah when i say something that's like difficult to talk about like given the social zeitgeist Anti-war, anti-militarism is like in the U.S. a really, really difficult thing to talk about. 
because I think it's so baked into the culture. Um, and people have all sorts of really like, like not wild, but like really creative justifications for like why war is fine and why militarism is necessary and why weapons are necessary. So it's, yeah, it's, I think it's a really important issue to talk about. So I guess like specifically, um, what we've been like me and a few other folks who I've like met at Tufts and like who are sympathetic to like trying to organize around demilitarizing or specifically like getting Tufts to stop inviting military industrial complex recruiters to campus or to break ties with companies like Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or to try to get professors to like stop accepting research money from Raytheon or Lockheed mm -hmm. Martin or the Department of Defense or blah blah blah. We have been doing things like holding rallies, like a counter rally, say like next to like a general dynamics recruiting event. So General Dynamics is one of the world's largest weapons manufacturers. I think they're maybe the world's third largest. They make bombs, tanks, recruit engineers to make bombs and tanks, but don't really tell them that that's what they're doing. They'll say like, oh, we're making you know, defensive uh, technology or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, we held like a rally next to them and we're like, this is you know, bad stuff. And they got really mad and called the campus police on us and wanted us to stop and got really upset but ultimately did end up um, just sort of stopping their, their presentation. Um, and we did a, we've done similar things for uh, Raytheon. So Raytheon is also a huge weapons manufacturer. They make you know, missiles, drone systems, uh, landmines, which are like prohibited under international law, mm -hmm. but they still make them. Mm -hmm. um, and they're... Headquarters is in Waltham, Massachusetts, so they're a local company. Raytheon was founded by two former Tufts alums, so Raytheon really? has always had a connection to Tufts. Oh. And the engineering department has connections with Raytheon. There are faculty who have like, worked for them and then you know, invite them to, to come and you know, give job recruitment talks, basically, which is what we went to and what this, this was. Mm. And um, one thing we did is I just went in there and started asking them questions about like, well, you know, are you all going to talk about like the fact that you make missiles and, you know, we had some facts, like how many people had been killed by Raytheon missiles, like wedding parties, school buses. Um, and, you know, they got very upset and uh, called the campus police <laughs> and wanted me to leave. And then, um, yeah, they, they basically got upset, and I just I just left anyway because I didn't really want to be escorted out by um, TPD. Mm -hmm. um, so we do stuff like that, and yeah. Kind of on that note, um, so how has your relationship to the institution been um, working, I guess, within the institution and also um, perhaps you've done organizing outside of an institution? Where do you see differences? Do you feel like the administration has, like, how have they reacted to the work that you've been doing? Right. Are there differences? Definitely. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's like Tufts, and I think probably most universities like already have somewhat of a community 
like you all, especially in undergrad life, I was just sort of talking with Daria about this. I think it's a little different in grad student life, but in undergrad life, a lot of you know each other and like you have classes and you're sort of aware of the people around you. And if something really picks up, you like know of people you can go to and like people can come through to events. Um, and that's not quite as much a given like outside of campus where people do become more isolated and have less community sort of by default because of the infrastructure of like regular outside of school society. Um, but that being said, so that's sort of a plus, I think, of university organizing. But something that's more difficult is that you all eventually leave. Uh, we all kind of turn over unless we're, you know, these like longtime faculty or something like this. And the university certainly relies on this. I think like when you sort of research into like what it's like doing campus organizing, um, it's sort of taken as like an obvious like, duh, that the university will kind of, you know, uh, if an issue becomes really large and they say, oh my gosh, we, you know, we must take this seriously. We're gonna, you know, start a committee or we're gonna start like um, an interview process where we wanna hear the students' thoughts about what's going on. Oh and then it takes like, it takes <laughs> a year or two and then they're like, we have some findings. And then people are like, well, what are you gonna do about these findings? And they're like, well, we're working on it. You can help us and join our committee. And then by the time this shit is all done, you're gone, yeah. right? Mm. And um, you know, they effectively kind of like let it fizzle out. And that's really prohibitive of change um, in a lot of ways. Um, but also in campus organizing, in, in a strange way, like students, I think, particularly hold a lot of power over the university that uh, may not be at first glance obvious. But the university truly relies on students coming to the university to exist in a way that, like, if you're, you know, in the Somerville community, like protesting the police, you know, you don't have as many levers of power over them. You know, you can try to affect the municipal budget, you can try to defund them, you can try to like get people to form alternative ways of like dealing with emergencies or crises. But at the end of the day, it's not like, you know, the police are uh, asking you to come, you know, be a part of the community and like take their classes and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But if you all like refuse to do class and you sort of band together and say, well, maybe like we won't pay tuition or something, or um, that's like, you know, the university is scared. Or if you publish pieces that make people not want to come to the university, like that's a huge lever of power that um, in, in other sort of institutional settings you don't have. So there, yeah, there are a lot of differences, um, but I think campus organizing presents kind of like an interesting microcosm of like uh, with, with different levers, that's a really good, um, environment to try to make change as well because I think when people come through universities it's a really formative time for everyone's lives so if you change universities there's a real like opportunity to change like big parts of society as well mm -hmm. and that was very cool <laughs> <laughs> well thanks I feel like we resonate a lot with that yeah we're in our fourth year of seeing all this. Yeah. Happen. The committee. The committee. Like, not really committee. resonated. Yeah. <laughs> not really resonated. Yeah. 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 I'm curious about, I mean, maybe it's a bit different being in the grad student position, but I'm definitely curious how you think about longevity. And I, I know that 
might be a hard question to answer um, as we all are here for like a short amount of time, but mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear more about like how you hope that the organizing that you're doing could live on past your time or how you like hope to continue to do that in future places you end up or any, right. any thoughts on kind of visions for the future in terms of continuing this work? Right, it's a good question. I think, oh, yeah, the question of how to keep it going on campus so is really hard, I think, because, you know, to take, I guess, the anti-militarist organizing in particular, I think the crew of us who have gotten involved and are interested is on the one hand growing, which is really nice. And it's, I think, um, it spans different ages. So I'm not particularly worried that that will sort of fizzle out in a way that like, if a club is like mostly seniors or if like, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of uh, initiative on campus is mostly seniors, it's like really nerve wracking to be like, oh my God, we like need to recruit freshmen and, you know, try to like pass the torch, so to speak. Um, but it's also that like, I think some of us who are like, even within like organizing groups, I think there are certain people who are like, really fiery about it and certain people who are like like it's it's a spectrum not to say that other people aren't like really passionate but certain people are like maybe instigators uh and and push people like push the group to do something um and it seems that some of uh the us who are pushing the group to do stuff in the sort of anti-militarist sense um we are the older people um and well, I'm like a lot older than all of them, but um, some some of them are like graduated students um, who like used to go here, but but have since moved on to other stuff. So there is some sort of fear of like, will this continue? Especially um, just given that it's a difficult thing to keep doing. Um, I think when I think of longevity, it's like you know even with the highest highs of like the climate organizing that I did. And you would think, you know, oh my gosh, like this will keep going for, for years. Um, and there's no shortage of interested people. It also did kind of die down. Like if you think of sort of like the national scene of like how much climate is on people's minds, it's not as much as it used to be because it was like really, really present. And then other things have sort of like, um, you know, taken, the, the attention since not the climate is gone, but it's, it's just a little less. So I think it's like, you know, there's a natural flow to things. And if like a crisis emerged in something that um, was like in a militarism space, like if we started a war that wasn't just um, like people adopted all the same opinion about it uh, at first, or like a much more unpopular war than I think like what is going on with Ukraine right now, then maybe there would be a resurgence of um, like anti-militarist organizing at Tufts. And people would maybe find like the daily articles that were written about the stuff that we've been doing these past couple of years and be like, oh my gosh, people have done this, we can do it again. Like I know when we were starting, we saw daily articles about students like protesting a career fair from like 2016 or something which was yeah. before i was here and before i think any of us were here so these things that like do last are also like little bits of inspiration mm -hmm. um and seeds i suppose that like can sort of like re um 
you know, re replenish like the vitality of certain movements. Um, but for me, for me specifically, I guess, I mean, I don't plan on stopping anything like this anytime soon because I actually think it's like, um, I think it's what everyone should be doing to be, to be frank. I, this is kind of a hot take that like gets me some enemies sometimes, <laughs> but when I think of like ways that we, like if we were to have like a democratic society where people were able to deliberate and be doing collective politics and be building a world that works for everybody, then I think we actually need to be doing stuff like this. And, you know, if a democratic world involves um, demilitarizing Tufts, which I think it does, um, then we actually always need to be doing some sort of anti-militarist organizing. Mm -hmm. And there's no shortage of issues, right, with the world that are like, oppressive things, undemocratic things, things that harm people, things that are unjust. Um, so I think for me, wherever I end up, I know that, and whatever, maybe maybe this will make me like less employable in the future or whatever, but it's like, the, I think these things need to be done. Um, and it's, it's not like, you know, I'm like setting my life out or setting out in my life to be like a boat rocker this like you know antagonistic person but i think it's just if you're like really being serious and true to like the idea that we need to be actively building a world that works for everybody we need to kind of push on things so i don't i don't really see myself ever stopping because i don't think in my lifetime we'll we'll get there yeah no. Um, I guess for people who are maybe entering Tufts or have been at Tufts for a while but haven't really been able to get started organizing yet, do you have any tips or do you have like advice that maybe you would want to give yourself when you started organizing? Like, what would you say to people who want to take that step but don't know how? Right, right. I think <laughs> no, it's it's. I think it's a hard question because on the one hand, I think. Like, like I'll, I'll say some things that I think are useful, but also I think it's a very personal thing to get involved. And I know when I was getting started, some, and, and continually, like, as I continue to be involved, some of the things that block me are, like, very personal things. Like, whether it's, like, the emotional burden of, like, do I want to set myself up to be, like, villainized by my university? Um, that I simultaneously, like, work for and want to get a degree for or from? And, um, or, you know, do I want to be like the subject of ire of like these, you know, Raytheon people who are going to yell at me or like other students who are going to say that I'm like depriving them of their internship opportunities. And that's like a very emotional thing. And I think like anyone getting started is going to have to deal with like the emotional uh, side of like, okay, what are some things that maybe prohibit me from uh, taking action or like doing something that's a little difficult or uncomfortable. <clears throat> so in that way, I don't think I can be perfectly prescriptive because you know, we're all coming from different places. But then at the same time, I think that one thing that I think is always helpful for anyone wanting to like take action on something is that like you have to like trust yourself that you have like thought through this and that you're right. And if you think something is wrong, that you're right. And you're not being like too sensitive or you're not being too antagonistic 
It's that if something deserves to be said, you have a right to say it. And I think that's like a huge barrier for a lot of people to like even take action to like just speak up, like even in a classroom. If you think something was like not cool in a class, you may be like, oh, well, do I deserve to say this? Well, of course you do. I think that's actually like one of the hardest things to like give ourselves is that sort of permission. Mm. So I think that's one thing. And then the other thing that can kind of help with that is like find other people, like ask your friends, which can be hard, but like ask your friends if they've like noticed similar things, how they feel about any issue that you care about. And everything is easier with other people. And I've been trying to lean into this um, like phrase that I read from Mariam Kaba, who's an awesome like abolitionist organizer. She says, everything worth doing is worth doing with other people. And I just really like that because I think there's like so much power in like not taking this on yourself. Um, so that, that can be a really huge, really huge boost. Yeah, I think that point about working collectively is so important. Nick also touched on some of the different ways that institutions will react to you for doing more heavily surveilled work, like vocally advocating for demilitarization which really made me think about the different institutions that we'll be grappling with as we continue on from college, like future employers or the government and even the internet, which I had an interesting conversation with Malvika about because I'd never thought about the internet as an institution before, but it really makes sense. And within all that, navigating pushback sounds like it can be really challenging. In our next and final interview, Ciara talks about advocating in solidarity with Palestine and the women life freedom movement in Iran. In our conversations, we start talking about the importance of social media to a movement, but also as a reality check, talking about the differences of activism online and in person, and also begin diving into the different, quote, levels of momentum, as she calls it, and how to bridge the divides between schools to form a more solid base of organizers. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with her as well. Here is Ciara. I guess we can sort of start off with the first question. Maybe introduce yourself a little bit about you, um, sort of what things you're working on now. It can be activism related, it can be sort of personal life related, whatever you would like cool. to share. Yeah, so um, I'm currently a student at the Fletcher School at Tufts, and I'm also enrolled at Harvard Divinity School doing um, dual masters um, in a Master of Theological Studies at Harvard and then a Master of Arts and Law and Diplomacy at um, Fletcher and a lot of my activism in at both Harvard and Fletcher kind of pertain to the same things and a lot of it has now been me being a bridge builder between the Harvard folks and Fletcher folk Fletcher and Tufts community um, on both Iran particularly because of the woman life freedom movement that's been taking place the last um, six and a half months and then um, also around uh, organizing for Palestine. But I am, I consider myself in a way a part of a lot of orgs, but also just like doing independent work a lot of the time and just finding all folks in both communities that are interested. So tangentially have been involved with Harvard PSC, the Palestine Solidarity Committee, which is mostly undergrads and um, that's like the primary group doing Palestine organizing at Harvard. And so I wanted to get plugged in despite being a graduate student. Um, but I got plugged in while I was fully enrolled at Tufts Fletcher School this year. So I've 
kind of also been doing organizing around starting the first pal trek at tufts and at fletcher palestine trek uh, that just got back uh, a week and a half ago as well as just independent kind of grassroots student organizing around uh, Iran, but also within Tufts Persian Student Association and um, like Harvard graduate Iranian students as well. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think I've met a lot of people who are like connected on multiple campuses. So I'm really curious as to like how that has gone. But before that, one thing that I'm wondering a little bit about is like, some of the like reasons or like ways that you got involved with like Palestinian liberation organizing and obviously I think in the case of the women life and freedom movement as well like how have is the fact that you're on a student campus and like we're on student campuses but like what what do you feel like the role of student organizing is in sort of those two avenues and struggles that you've worked within yeah definitely okay so with Iran staff um, I'm Iranian-American. That identity has been really important to me growing up uh, in California. I never lived in Iran, uh, but just being a member of the, the diaspora, I've always tried to bridge the gap between um, the U.S. and Iran in terms of American understanding about Iranian people, culture, and the government. And so this movement is the biggest in my lifetime, and um, it kind of felt very intuitive that I would do a lot of organizing around this because if I didn't, in a way, who would within the Iranian student or within the general public? And like, I'm the only Iranian at Fletcher, for example, and I'm one of two Iranians at Harvard Divinity. So it kind of was like, well, no one else is bringing it up, so I should, right? <laughs> and then as for as far as Palestine organizing goes, I had the opportunity through Harvard last summer to spend three months living in Ramallah and doing kind of a lot of engaging with Palestinian organizers, NGO activists, and a lot of other communities. And my gap in my knowledge gap in terms of Israel-Palestine mm -hmm. has really been minimized over the last year where I feel a lot more comfortable being vocal about it and now have lived experience of being there and so I so felt like everyone was telling me to go back and tell them what you saw here and so if I were to gatekeep the experience I wouldn't consider that you know ethical or moral and um, knew that as someone who isn't Palestinian having the opportunity to go there when most people can't or when a lot of Palestinians can't go back um, just felt like even more important but overall I um I was student body president in undergrad and that was, so I, I wasn't like an activist. I was more diplomatic, mm. but I had to engage with a lot of different student groups. And so coming here, I now not being involved in student government in any of these spaces, I still kind of understand just the, the politics and dynamics of, of student organizing and how to be the most effective because I've seen like what has worked um, within my own college campus. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think like the Palestinian solidarity activism at Harvard is so interesting and like inspiring. I have a couple of friends who go there who I've met through like South Asian organizing spaces. And, like, they're all like very involved mm -hmm. with Palestinian solidarity organizing and like the week of like events that you guys had last week was amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Amazing. 
conferences and it was really really cool but, like you talk about a little bit being like a bridge builder between the two campuses and like between like age groups and like all of that too and like life circumstances like how has that been like what kinds of strategies and things have you utilized yeah I mean social media obviously makes it a lot easier to do these things I find myself connecting with a bunch of people via Instagram like yourself and I also uh kind of like the amount of whatsapp chats I have is just ridiculous at this point but yeah I would say like there's different levels of momentum right so like with Palestine, Harvard students are doing a lot, but a lot of that momentum is coming from the undergrads. And there's a lot of fragmentation between the Harvard undergraduate community and the grad schools, just because, I mean, the grad schools are already fragmented and a lot of people stay within their own communities. But if you want to see mobilization on a cause that is just like, you know, incredibly controversial in the United States for many reasons um, that we can get into or not, but I think ultimately you know strength is truly in numbers and what Harvard PSC does really well is they're they're kind of building an undergrad community which is like the pulse of Harvard Mm. that is you know engaging with these issues and whichever side you know of the story they they land on but I would say there, there are a lot of animated students doing Harvard PSC but it is like the same people over and over again. And so it begs the question of like, when these people graduate, I'm sure they're going to pass the baton, but it can be difficult when it's like the same people, not that they're gatekeeping at all, but you know, it is kind of hard to be bold on Palestine and it is like, um, there are repercussions. And so I really would love to see this momentum carry when these folks graduate um, because it's not going to come from grad students um, when it comes to Harvard PSC. But then, for example, with the Iranian community, it's very much like, I would say Tufts students are a lot more active. Yeah, for sure. And so, like, so it kind of is interesting, you know, where the momentum is. And I know Tufts SJP, like, has a long history of being very active, and I know it comes in waves. And so, you know, what is Harvard PSC today might not be active in the same way that it was, just like Tufts SJP. Um, but the Harvard, the Tufts Persian Student Association has, again, you see these same things where it's like on Instagram, it looks like a huge thing. Mm. And when it comes down to organizing, it's the same like 10 people, five, mm. 10 people, which is like, it's unfortunate, but I think it's the reality. And I think it's just about how are you going to bring people in and, and being in Boston, it's really important to mobilize or like bring community within different spaces which is what I saw on Sunday we had a Christian New Year event and it was very much like Harvard Iranians, Tufts Iranians, BU Iranians so that was kind of cool to see that community but yeah it's interesting it's difficult for sure. That's interesting yeah the knowledge question is something that I've thought a lot about too like how to like pass on that knowledge you were talking about like having experiences living in Ramallah and like passing on that knowledge as well like how do you see the role of like information or like institutional knowledge yeah um it can be difficult because I think there's some spaces where you can't rely on the institution because the institution doesn't want you right to succeed in this effort and so it really comes down to you know making sure that everything is really like codified in whatever system you have to bookkeep because otherwise it really will get lost and I saw this just 
with within my like student government in my undergrad but I think for me seeing the momentum and like history of a certain organization kind of gives me hope in a lot of ways of like wow look at how far we've come and I know Harvard PSC talks a lot about that as well of like they it wasn't this big like four or five years ago like they really have had a lot of of momentum and credibility and for me I think when it comes to my experience in Ormala like a lot of folks that are organizing have not been to the region and so like I felt it was important to do that and frame events around what we saw while we were there and so with like the Palestine truck at Fletcher we're having a conversation or like a presentation next week about just like what these 18 students saw while being on the trek because the trek is just one part but ultimately when it comes to activism now we have you know 18 students like who are animated by what they saw and now activists is kind of a strong term but I would say like they are now animated to be activists in whatever capacity that looks like which they wouldn't have been if they hadn't gone and felt like that knowledge gap had decreased I think having a lot of spaces for that is really really key Social media too, I think it's interesting because there's so much good that can come with it. And there's also so much like potential and like you have to be able to like do digital security stuff and like kind of know like what you're putting out there. Have you thought about like those two things in your personal life? Yeah, I think that's an important question because I have done a lot of grappling in the last six months about this topic. On both the Palestine and Iran front, um, like Palestine been talking about a lot even before I went, but it was not to the extent of what I'm doing now. And I was definitely very much like if I didn't know about it, if I couldn't respond to a comment on it, I wasn't going to like post it, even if I was like, yeah, that's messed up or whatever. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's really hard to be, you know, doing activism in this space because of social media and how again it's they don't want you to succeed algorithms are just horrible for these causes iran included ironically despite it being now kind of very western backed and supported and everyone wants to go like support the women of iran which obviously i am really grateful for but it's still interesting how that doesn't play out within the algorithm shadow banning is definitely real last week i was doing my little social media experiment i don't know if you saw i don't want instagram to be a news source but i also recognize that for a lot of folks who follow me like Mm -hmm. they wouldn't get anything on this so i will make instagram a news source because they're not going to be doing or learning or knowing about an event that just happened in the middle east broadly to be honest I felt really frustrated knowing that my viewership on stories like has been cut in half in the last seven months, which is like really bad. (laughs) The people that are seeing my stories now are a lot of my close friends, also on my close friend's story, which is like, that's not the point. Like if I'm getting 250 views on a story in 24 hours and I have 90 people on my close friends, I don't have that many close friends, then who am I actually reaching? And so it's been really frustrating um, because I I don't know how else to to communicate about what's happening on such a regular basis and like what animates me. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, these spaces like aren't giving me the platform to be able to reach. You know, I know there's not 2000 active people on Instagram, for example, but there's definitely at least a thousand, at least 600. You know, if you have that many followers, like it should be kind of the same. So. 
I would say the shadow banning real <laughs> doxing is real and I have not had that experience yet I recognize like my positionality in all of this as well and I think being someone who wants to go into human rights advocacy and focus on the Middle East makes me both a candidate for doxing but yeah. also like I'm already going into this space like so I should be talking about it I guess and so I'm okay to get doxxed but I have definitely had to have a lot of conversations with myself about do I want to run for office one day because yeah. if I do, yeah I probably shouldn't be doing any of this and do I want to serve in a U.S. government capacity thing well then I definitely shouldn't be doing this and that is why I, after coming back from Ramallah, had that reckoning. And I was like, no, this is important to me. And like, I want to sleep well at night. And I am going to use my privilege to showcase as much as I saw being there and like use my voice at two, you know, really incredible institutions yeah. in the country to talk about issues I care about and why we need to rethink both on Iran too like there's a lot of problematic stuff being talked about with Iran and so that's kind of like I created a TikTok on all of this all of my experience living in the West Bank and that was another reckoning of like I'm really putting myself out there as much as like we got a lot of love from a lot of people like I get comments all the time that like I'm being anti-Semitic and and like a lot of trolling <laughs> woke up this morning responding to someone about it. So it's not for everyone, but there's other ways to be, you know, involved and okay. don't want people to think that they can't be unless they're doing stuff that I am in a very vocal public way. I've noticed too, like a lot of the like various activists I follow or like people who are doing like work where they have to communicate a lot publicly. Like I feel yeah. like they'll always end up at the end of my like stories yeah. or like all the way at the back. And like no one has time to look at all of their Instagram followers' stories. Exactly. And I think even just reposting things, yeah. like news school posts just really don't get any. So I'm like really trying to figure out what to do and I know yeah. people just selfie and then say something it was just like the problem is that not enough people know that's why I'm doing it and so it, it can just like all be messy um overall and so I think the activism strategy is really just like don't rely on one tool for change and I mean people yeah people say they see my stories and like they're they are really insightful and sometimes I'm like yeah I feel like I'm posting too much I'm being annoying but also I don't care and so I'm glad at least I'm going to keep posting just because I know if five people see it and they're moved by it that's still like good enough for me and yeah. it might not reach the amount of people I want but as long as I'm aware of that then that's all I can do finally like changing gears a little bit but we sort of talked about like various institutions like whether it be Tufts, Harvard, online like structures and how has your activism sort of interacted with like power structures at Tufts? I guess I'm like curious as to what your experiences with like Tufts specifically or with Harvard specifically administration wise have been. Fletcher admin has been pretty good like the Fletcher dean has been really responsive on on Iran specifically I'd say and she was really instrumental in getting the Tufts Persian Student Association to have this whole panel speaker series um, this semester, because last semester, President Monaco didn't say anything about Iran, and yeah. that was a big thing and, like, really frustrating to students. Harvard didn't say anything either, but Harvard president emailed the people that did email him with, like, a generic message. But, like, there was still at least some element of 
hey, like I hear you, even yeah. if you're going to say it on a, a broad level. And I mean, at this point, I don't really care for a statement from either of them. But mm-hmm. at the time when a lot of people didn't know about it, particularly when Iranian military and like security forces were raiding a prominent university in Tehran, yeah. mm-hmm. it was very much like, okay, you know, as students, a globally minded community, shouldn't we be concerned about something that's happening at another university with students just like us? And yeah. so I felt that was a massive oversight. And that was one of the things that inspired at Harvard. I led like a die-in to kind of raise awareness about like, we need back now to speak up, but also at the same time, recognizing that like, we don't need anyone to speak up because ultimately like from a solidarity standpoint, m- the important thing for me at least was getting to Iranians in Iran and saying like, I see you. Cause this was yeah. mid-October. So things were still, it was like really early. And I posted on TikTok and I got, I don't know, like 120,000 views. And I was like, there are people from Iran commenting. So I was like, okay, back out and make a statement. But we still showed our solidarity at Harvard. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so Tufts, I think they, we were able to secure like a, a speaker series and get university funding. And I think, you know, the PSA is really happy about that. And we've been able to bring Iranians voices and work to see about like a scholar at risk next year from Iran but I would say you know again it goes back to the narratives and like what narratives are kind of relevant in the space of Iran because yeah Iran fits a lot of western narratives that you can point to in the same way that Afghanistan Mm -hmm. uh, also does like free these women free of like from Islam and so I've like been really trying to be mindful of that while also being like, yeah, we should have events in Iran because it's been yeah. completely misunderstood. But no, like there's not going to be university-wide funding for a Palestine series. Like, so yeah, that's all stuff to keep in mind. But interestingly, something that just happened today on mm-hmm. the Fletcher School side, because we had our Palestine track, the Fletcher social media is posting about all the treks. They there was an there's an Israel trek too, which I'm sure they'll all be posting. Right. But they did post the Palestine trek, and our caption talked about the apartheid wall, military occupation, and they included it on their LinkedIn post and on their um, Instagram. So I think you know it wasn't censored. Yeah, it was like awesome i guess to end what are your hopes or like dreams for future in terms of organizing or like sustaining organizing through if you see yourself in that role like throughout your life like what are things that you're yeah hopeful for i guess i would say yeah i think for the first time in my life i've felt like i've found my like purpose i know what excites me like i know what i care about but to kind of feel so committed to these two things that like nothing else matters is a new feeling for me as someone who was more like generalist or like, I care about this region or um, this topic broadly. And so to kind of focus the last year and see how I can use institutions in a way to shape narratives and to you know, push folks in the right direction. Like ultimately people, like these are our peers 
And so these peers are going to go and be in a lot of different um, spaces, <laughs> particularly being at a diplomacy international affairs school. And so I feel really pushed and like hopeful about bringing in these narratives that are important that like, you know, I'm not going to be probably working at the State Department. I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah. I will. But at the at the moment, like I'm at least getting those people who are probably going to be working at state to be thinking about Israel-Palestine in a more nuanced way, to be thinking about Iran that goes beyond the nuclear deal, that goes beyond, you know, regional stability and what that looks like. So I'm really hopeful for me at least that I know that it's really exhausting, yeah. but I also know that I'm going to do my part and I hope other people can do theirs about really being bold and not being scared about all the fear mongering because I really do believe that like in the most cliche way justice will prevail like it it's not going to be overnight but I I do think that like with the with the Israel-Palestine narrative like things are changing and yeah. it's a lot more ripeness for conversation about this and I think people are starting to wake up about it and I feel as an American personally that like you know we're also complicit but like if more Americans know which they will because of you know, the many activists in yeah. the spaces like things will change and Palestine is just one example of a struggle for liberation and so if one of these things finally shifts I think it'll again continue to set precedent in the same way that we talk about South Africa and it's just like we don't know when it's going to happen but we just got to be persistent and so I'm really hopeful about um, people being excited about once they know once they finally understand when you know one context you realize like it's the same tools of oppression being employed in all of these spaces and people learning about it from like governments learning from each other and it's really unfortunate and disgusting and unfortunately some are more controversial than others so people just need to read more i agree <laughs> hopefully right. that's a good spot to end this thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it obviously this is a lot of information to take in at once and i'm still digesting all of the topics we discussed and conversations we had through this process thank you so much to all of our speakers we hope you were able to engage with their perspectives and challenge them as well um, you definitely don't have to agree with everything that was said or take this as gospel in any way. These are all people's experiences of organizing and by nature they will be different. Um, I think the fascinating part for us as people organizing this and listening was getting to hear from these perspectives um, and creating our own conclusions. Um, other thank yous that we all want to give out is to the Tisch College, specifically Brianda, um, for helping us to organize and organize organize this law and um, put it together as a capstone. Brianda is the best. Brianda is the best. Um, thank you again to our speakers, Jamila, Nick, Ciara. Um, I want to thank Sharika for her expertise. Lol. Yes. And no. bringing us Sharika. onto this podcast and sharing her platform. I'm dead. This project. Thank you to the Women's Center for helping us to organize. And thank you to you listeners for tuning in. Um, please hit us up on Instagram if you guys have any questions. We'll be dropping ads and other important links in our description if you guys want to get more involved with all of the movements that they were talking about. Anything you guys want to say? Thanks for tuning in.
<laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful.